Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tinnitus Talk. I can't believe it, but today is our fourth episode. We seem to be gathering some speed with these as we gain more experience with putting them together. Today, we have lined up for you an interview with Richard Tyler. He has a long career in tinnitus research and management. We talked with him about the tinnitus conference that he will be hosting soon, as well as his views on tinnitus management, what clinicians should know, and what patients can do to help themselves. Before we go to the interview, I just want to give you guys a teaser for our upcoming episodes. We have quite a few things coming down the pipeline, so here's what you can expect from us. We interviewed Louisa Scott, the chief scientific officer and founder of Cognoceta, a drug discovery company advancing pharmaceutical therapies for tinnitus. We interviewed Marcelo Revolta, a stem cell researcher focusing on hearing regeneration. We interviewed Winfried Schleen, the scientific coordinator of the Tinnitus Research Initiative. And we interviewed two authors of the new European Clinical Practice Guidelines for Tinnitus. So that's a lot of exciting things coming up. We just need to figure out in what order to publish these interviews and conduct the editing, which is always quite a chore. We'd also like to give a big thank you to our first Patreon supporter. He or she wishes to remain anonymous, but with their generous support, we can make bigger and better podcasts in the future. As we operate on a tiny budget, even very small donations are welcome. You can find the link to our Patreon page in our own podcast website, tinnitustalk.com slash podcast. Now, without further ado, let's listen to our chat with Richard Tyler. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with me today, Dr. Richard Tyler from the University of Iowa. Thank you for joining us today, Richard. Glad to be here. So we have a, a lot of questions to get through. We have a lot of things to talk about. But before we jump into that, I want to get everyone to be on the same page as to who you are and what you do and what goes on um, where you're working. So can you just give everyone a general background about yourself? I was trained as an audiologist uh, at the University of Western Ontario and then uh, came to Iowa to do a PhD in psychoacoustics. Uh, my first job was in the United Kingdom. I worked at the Institute of Hearing Research, eventually decided to come back to Iowa and uh, joined the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders and the Department of Otolaryngology. And I've been here for many years doing work on cochlear implants and on tinnitus and seeing tinnitus patients um, on a regular basis. And uh, I'm enjoying myself. Wow. So it seems like you've pretty much been in this space your entire life, essentially, starting in, in being an audiologist and then making your way to the research side of it. Yeah. I, they were doing some research on uh, tinnitus when I worked in England and with Ross Coles and colleagues. And uh, it sort of got me interested with my background in science and my ability to apply that to clinical issues. And so I was very motivated. Was there anything about tinnitus research or, or learning about tinnitus that kind of stood out to you that got you interested in it? My training in psychoacoustics um, really focused on uh, measuring things from a scientific perspective. And uh, so at the time, there was uh, not much understood in, about measuring different tinnitus and different perspectives. And so uh, I just took my basic psychoacoustics of measuring uh hearing and measuring hearing loss and applied that directly to measuring tinnitus. Oh, wow. That's an interesting approach. A lot, a lot of people didn't really come to tinnitus from that perspective. That's, that's pretty cool, in my opinion. Another thing that I, I want to bring up to get everyone aware of is, why don't we talk a little bit about the event that you host every year? I am having the 27th annual International Conference on the Management of Tinnitus and Hyperacusis 
this June uh, 13th and 14th in Iowa City at the university. And uh, when I started this many, many years ago, I just wanted to see if I could even attend a conference that was really focused on the clinical management. And there just wasn't any. There were a few research conferences, but at the time there was just nothing focused on helping clinicians. And so I decided to do it eventually and uh, hosted a conference. And in the early days, there'd be 20 or 30 people. And now there's uh, well over 100 people come from all around the world. It's focused uh, on clinical perspectives and managing tinnitus patients, helping them. We always have uh, the latest in research, but it's very organized. I uh, create the entire program. So it's not most conferences, uh, people submit abstracts from the outside, and it's mostly focused on research and different topics. But this is very systematic, very organized. Uh, every aspect, I hope, is covered that would lead clinicians to actually um, set up a practice and to know what the latest strategies are for helping tinnitus patients. Um, we also get uh, researchers. We also get um, even uh, investors trying to look and see what the latest things are. But I, I control quite carefully the program and um, been doing this for every for several several years, and we always have at the end a square dance in a round barn just outside of Iowa City, and that's always a big hit with the attendees as well. <laughs> so, uh, so, from what I understand, though, th this this isn't just for physicians or researchers. There are people such as students and and regular people that can come to this event as well. That certainly is true. It's it's focused on clinicians to try to help them understand what's going on. But as I said, we also have researchers. And in fact, um, we uh, enable uh, patients to show up with their tinnitus. And uh, that's there's opportunities during the program to let them share their experiences. And for some of the uh, clinicians attending the conference, it's very helpful to see patients there and to hear what their perspectives are and what they've tried and what's worked and what they need and what has not worked. So it's uh, we have breakout sessions and we have lots of opportunities for people to interact. So I think it's sort of uh, very appropriate to help people um, and to help clinicians get started in the field and to learn what the latest uh, approaches are to helping tinnitus patients. And, and when you say clinicians, are you talking about um, specifically ENTs or neurologists or uh, general practitioners, or is it a, a pretty much anyone in, in that w that's interested mainly comes, or is there a specific type of doctor that's coming? Well, they're uh, mostly audiologists. Mm -hmm. We have we have a few uh, otolaryngologists, but it's mostly clinicians, uh, sometimes psychologists, sometimes hearing instrument specialists. There's quite a wide variety of people that show up. We have had uh, psychiatrists, and um, as I said, it's just uh, a wide group, and the ability to interact and, and learn from each other is an important part of this as well. Right. So it seems that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you kind of see a dissociation between what patients were looking for from clinicians and what clinicians were providing. And you kind of wanted to bridge that gap and kind of get everyone to be on the same page as to like, I know for, for me and a lot of people 
who, when they got their tinnitus and they go see their doctor initially, the doctor initially is, is very blunt and will say, learn to live with it. There's nothing we can do. It's, it, it wasn't very optimistic, uh, that first, uh, <laughs> meeting with the doctor. So is that kind of what you want to do is kind of educate these doctors on, on better ways to how to approach tinnitus and how to help patients deal with it? Broadly speaking, yes. I think part of the problem was that, that simply people did not know what to do. Right. Uh, clinicians weren't sure what the approaches were. And, and since there's no pill and no surgery in, in almost all cases, it was, uh, you know, and the patients, some of the patients are very desperate and um, it just wasn't clear how to move forward for the clinicians. And so this was an attempt um, to develop a strategy um, so that uh, clinicians would have a plan and could be helpful. With the conference coming up, can you tell us more about it as to what we can look forward to, what goes on? Yeah, so the conference again is at the University of Iowa, June 13th and 14th of this year. And we have a number of speakers uh, coming from uh, around the world. And uh, this year, we're going to have a few uh, talks on different uh, physiological models of tinnitus by uh, Phil Gander and Stephen Green. We are going to focus on sleep therapy with the sleep therapy specialist, Maggie Moore. We're also going to focus on some uh, medical evaluations with Marlon Hansen and with Claudia Colio, um, who's been helping to this patients for a number of years. We're also going to look at some new directions, um, including uh, neuromodulation and uh, somatosensory treatments with uh, Hubert Lim. And we're also going to emphasize a little more um, hyperacusis this year. So we have uh, Ann Perot is going to talk about the counseling of hyperacusis activities treatment. We're going to have uh, Sylvie Hibert um, from Quebec talk about uh, new directions of some research she's doing. Um, ben Greenberg is going to talk about some new um, questionnaires he developed to try and help uh, understand hyperacusis. And Brian Pollard from the hyperacusis uh, group is going to talk about some pain hyperacusis and the challenges that that has created for lots of people. So we're going to emphasize that. And I'm also uh, pleased to say that this year, uh, our guest of honor is going to be Shelley Witt, um, who I've been working with for over 20 years. Uh, Shelley sees tinnitus patients and hyperacusis patients on a regular basis and has been able to help so many patients uh, from around the world. Um, and she just has so much experience. She cares so much. She has lots of individual stories to tell. And she's going to be our guest of honor this year. And I'm proud to work with Shelley, who will share her experiences on people that are really troubled by their tinnitus and really troubled by their hyperacusis and how she's been able to help them. Wow. Sounds fantastic. Seems like you have a great lineup that's I would be interested for people who both have tinnitus and hyperacusis. It's kind of like a broad spectrum to get everyone. In addition to the speakers, we also have uh, industry representation. So a lot of the companies that are involved in using different sound therapies also have the special demonstrations 
of their sound therapies and the strategies they've used. And they also have uh, talks on Friday morning sharing what uh, is new in the uh, sound therapy fields that they have been able to provide from their different companies. So that's another regular uh, event at our tinnitus and hyperacusis conferences, giving the companies an opportunity to share what's new from their perspective as well. We told everyone on our forum that we were going, or in our community, that we were going to be getting you on for an interview for the podcast. Everyone was very excited. We had a bunch of people. We had threads about you already on there. And when we had people talking about, oh, like, can you ask him this? Can you ask him this? So we have a bunch of questions that we want to ask you now. So in a recent podcast we did with Dr. Ross Checker, he highlighted the immense complexity of tinnitus. And so I understand that you were the first to emphasize the importance of subtyping tinnitus. Can you tell us a little more about that? You know, we sort of use one generic term for everybody, but in fact, there are all kinds of differences. Um, so uh, it's, I emphasize this, in fact, in an article back in 2008. Uh, I think that it's unlikely one particular cure is going to work for everybody. So we might need to explore different uh, subtypes, and that might be um, patients that have had tinnitus um, for different causes, for example, uh, caused by noise exposure uh, versus um, some pharmaceutical cause or the aging cause. Or it might be that we can do different measurements of tinnitus that helps us subtype and categorize tinnitus patients in different ways. And by doing uh, measurements like that and by subtyping in general ways, we're more likely to find a cure for a particular subtype of tinnitus patient. So I think that's what I was trying to emphasize many years ago. Do we have a, or do you have a specific number of subtypes currently? And is that ever expanding? One could get a little carried away, I suppose, with the uh, because there's lots of different ways of measuring and quantifying tinnitus. But I, th I think the first step is just to start off with some simple things. Um, and again, that could easily be the logical cause, causes like noise exposure versus aging. Um, and there are some measurements that uh, we have done looking at uh, post-masking effects and uh, pure tone masking effects. Um, the quality that people report and the frequency region of the pitch match. So there's, there's lots of different strategies. And I think just uh, picking on some of those, um, you know, and is an important way to start just to highlight that these patients are quite different. And again, no one treatment is likely to work for everybody with tinnitus. So this kind of ties into the next question I have. Do you know of any current or future drugs that may be able to short circuit uh, this tinnitus signal that's happening? Unfortunately, I'm going to say no, that I do not. Um, keep in mind, of course, that there are drugs that can help with anxiety and depression, and there are drugs and dietary supplements that can help with sleep problems. But uh, there's uh, some interesting discussions going on uh, about future drug treatments. But at this point, I really can't say uh, drug X is the way to go. It's just not clear at all. I'm happy you brought up medication to help uh, deal with 
side effects of the tinnitus, which would be like things like anxiety and depression. A, a lot of, I guess there's a lot of uh, confusion about those drugs. Like many people worry that they are uh, autotoxic or, or can uh, negatively affect their tinnitus. Do you think that people who have tinnitus and, and they're struggling with it, do you think that it's better for them to seek help and, and use those alternative medications to treat the anxiety, depression, sleeping issues instead of avoiding them because they might make their tinnitus worse? Do you think it's, do you think that risk is smaller than what people really think it is? Well, I think the first step should be exploring counseling and sound therapy and hearing aid options. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, uh, helps many, many people and does not include um, any medications that might make the tinnitus potentially worse. So that's the first step. Right. Uh, and all I'm saying is that um, for somebody who has severe um, anxiety and depression uh, resulting from their tinnitus, that um, does not preclude them from seeing a psychiatrist, for example, and getting some treatment, and it may be a temporary treatment to help them get through that stage. But at this point, at least, since there is no drug for the tinnitus itself, the appropriate strategy is counseling and sound therapy and hearing aids. Okay. And do you see any future cure or treatment in electrical stimulation? Yes. So actually I do. <laughs> I've been uh, exploring the use of uh, electricity at the eardrum, in the middle ear cavity, and uh, inside the cochlea with different electrodes for many, many years. Um, we actually, back in 1989, published an article on um, using alternating current at the eardrum to try and do this. So we certainly know that lots of people that get cochlear implants for profound hearing loss say, oh, I can hear better, thank you very much. Even better than that, my tinnitus is gone. Now, it doesn't help everybody. There is some challenges, um, but a lot of people are helped, and I think that there's some great potential here to use electrical stimulation in a variety of different approaches to try and help patients with tinnitus. It's also very interesting that in some, uh, some countries in Europe, um, somebody that has a unilateral hearing loss, a hearing loss on one ear, a profound hearing loss in one ear, many of them also have tinnitus in that one ear. And many of these people are now getting cochlear implants in that ear, and it usually helps their hearing. But even if it doesn't help their hearing substantially in many ways, it often helps their tinnitus. So a lot of patients with unilateral deafness and tinnitus are getting cochlear implants because of their tinnitus, not because of their hearing loss. And I think this is a great opportunity um, throughout the United States and the world to help patients with unilateral deafness and tinnitus. This is a, a win-win situation. Um, to provide cochlear implants in this population. So I think there needs to be more visibility and discussion um, in the United States and elsewhere to try and help these people with unilateral deafness and tinnitus. Right. Great starting point for cochlear implants for tinnitus. That's a, that sounds very promising. And so now to, to a big question, because it's very relevant to a lot of us, what is your opinion on bimodal stimulation? 
it's it's been interesting because for several years uh, we know that some patients that have tinnitus, when they touch their neck or they touch their face, um, their tinnitus can disappear while the stimulation is going on. Uh, for other patients, touching the neck or the chin or something can actually make the tinnitus worse. So uh, it has been known for many, many years that there's some ability of the, um, of the sensory systems to interact in some clever way. And um, there's some potential and some preliminary st studies I've seen in several situations where it may very well be that some of these neuromodulation strategies may help some tinnitus patients. So again, I think uh, we're at an early stage. I think we need some careful examination of results looking at individual patients, but I think there's at least some potential again to move forward to see how this uh, neuromodulation might help some tinnitus patients. All right, Richard. So the next question is, in your opinion, does tinnitus volume matter when, when dealing with patients and potentially how distressed they can be? Do you think that people who have louder tinnitus suffer more, or do you think that there's a lot more there's a lot more complex equation going on in regards to how people are affected emotionally and how loud their tinnitus is. Uh, Rene Damon and I, uh, many years ago, uh, developed, uh, I think 1992, developed a psychological model of tinnitus um, that involves the, what I would refer to as the magnitude of tinnitus. And that's different from the reactions that people have. So, um, you can, your tinnitus is a certain characteristics of loudness and pitch and quality, and the reactions that you have uh, result from that, but the reactions that you have also depend on your individual psychological makeup. So some of us are used to using, used to dealing with a lot of stress in our lives. Some of us um, are uh, equipped to deal with things. Some of us are quite sensitive to different things. So we're all different. So I think that it's important to appreciate that you have the tinnitus and you have the reaction to the tinnitus. So the correlations between things like loudness and the reactions to the tinnitus are not always high because there are individual psychological characteristics that contribute to that. But uh, as I often say at meetings to tinnitus patients, because I've heard people say, well, the loudness is not that important. I always say, um, if you would prefer to have a louder tinnitus, please raise your hand. And nobody does that because having a louder tinnitus is likely to be more disturbing for people. Um, so, I, so I do think it's important to, um, to keep a distinction between the characteristics of the tinnitus itself and the reactions that people have. Those are two separate aspects. Okay. And as improvement happens with people in tinnitus, and when I say improvement, I mean better coping strategies. Do you think that when you talk and meet with patients, it's not only a reduction in volume over time that's beneficial for them. It's, it's also how, to, how they cope with it and how they deal with it. Yes, absolutely. It's their reactions. So the sound may not change. The sound isn't good or bad. It's a sound. So the question is, how can from a clinician point of view, how can I, how can I help you change your reactions to the tinnitus? 
it's a sound. It's not good or bad. And we all have challenges in life. And this is a sound. And you still have friends. You still have things you enjoy doing. You still have a job. You still have partners. Lots of different ways of thinking about this. But it's a sound. It's not a good sound or a bad sound. It's a sound. So my next question, one of your treatments that we were kind of, or a treatment that is used for people with tinnitus, what is your opinion on TRT, tinnitus retraining therapy? When I was uh, working in England, this came about and there were already some strategies in place, including some publications we had made. And um, it turns out that tinnitus retraining therapy um, uses directive counseling, not collaborative counseling, which... Um, which was against everything I ever learned in a psychology class. You need to be collaborative and interactive with patients. So I thought that the counseling was not a good thing. And the focus was on a mixing point, which was just below the level that, uh, that masked the tinnitus. And that also concerned me because I think that um, a, a loud background sound has the potential to make tinnitus worse and also has the potential to make it more difficult to understand speech in the presence of a background sound. So uh, we argued early on that um, using a low-level um, background sound would likely be more beneficial for many people. Everybody's different, but we suggested at least starting off attempting just a low-level background sound. And I knew from my training in psychoacoustics that um, even a normal hearing person hearing a pure tone, you could reduce the loudness of that pure tone by presenting a low-level background noise. So uh, we suggested using that low-level background sound, not using the mixing point. Um, and then um, we had developed and published some of our uh, some of our counseling strategies back in 1986 um, before TRT, but that sort of um, was largely ignored, and uh, I didn't realize that we had to sort of promote this. Uh, we had several publications and several journals about and in books um, on uh, our counseling strategies. So eventually we gave it a name, tinnitus activities treatment. It didn't have a name like that for years, but um, I think that it can be very helpful for a lot of people. But uh, I think that the uh, focus on TRT of directive counseling, not collaborative, and the use of the mixing point was not a good contribution to the field. Okay. You mentioned the aspect of counseling. What type of specific counseling are you referring to? So we, as I said, eventually gave our counseling a name, tinnitus activities treatment. Right. And so this is um, focuses on what I consider the uh, four uh, common aspects that are affected by tinnitus, potentially thoughts and emotions, hearing, sleep, and concentration. So most of the patients we see have difficulties with thoughts and emotions and hearing. Um, and sometimes the hearing difficulties are hard to distinguish between the hearing difficulties due to the hearing loss and the hearing difficulties due to the tinnitus. And some people with tinnitus say they have to hear through the tinnitus or they have to hear over it or when their tinnitus is worse, it's more difficult to hear or the tinnitus masks some sounds. But 
Um, most of the patients we see have difficulty with their thoughts and emotions, and they have difficulty with hearing because of their tinnitus. In addition to that, a lot of patients come in with difficulties with sleep. And a lot of patients, not all of them, but a lot of them have difficulty with concentrating, with reading uh, something or focusing on a hobby. And so our strategy, therefore, is to try and focus on um, the activities that go on in um, the individual results. So we have uh, picture-based strategies that have been, been available for years online on our university site. It's been translated into several different languages and used around the world. Um, so it's interactive. There's uh, They come into the clinic, they go through and do some ex examples in the, in the clinic. They uh, go through these picture-based strategies. We include uh, things like cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, we include a pa patient-focused uh, treatments, and then they uh, go home for a couple of weeks and come back, try, they try some homework, they come back and we go over what their homework was. We re review things and go to the next step, um, hearing difficulties and how they can communicate better with their hearing loss and with their challenges of hearing caused by tinnitus. And then if they have sleep problems, we go through some strategies that can help with sleep. If, uh, and that could include um, sound therapy strategies. And if they have problems with uh, concentration when they come back, uh, we go through aspects having to do with uh, concentration and focusing their attention. So there's lots of different strategies and that could include um, art therapy and music therapy and mindfulness and uh, a lot of different strategies that can be incorporated um, depending upon the individual's perspective and the individual's needs. So it has to be really individualized because um, we're all different, um, but it focuses on those four primary functions affected by tinnitus. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I, I remember you mentioned, and, and also my previous question, this, I just remembered this, you talked about how when there's a lot of background noise, people with uh, is it just people with tinnitus or is it people with generalized hearing loss? Sometimes they can have a hard time with hearing speech. Is there a specific reason for that? Because a lot of people with tinnitus, when they have hearing loss, it's it's above the it's above the level of human speech. So I do find it interesting that for some reason they would also have trouble or some people would have trouble with human speech uh, range frequencies uh, when there's background noise. Is there any, anything behind that that you can maybe shed some light on? Well, uh, everybody has more difficulty hearing speech in noise compared to speech in quiet. That's very common. And again, we're all getting a hearing loss. It's part of the natural aging process. And uh, when we have a hearing loss, that makes it more difficult in general to hear speech in noise and different for different people. But um, hearing speech and noise is quite complicated. Now, there is several oral rehabilitation strategies that can help with hearing speech and noise, and we go through that in our hearing uh, categories, our hearing strategies in tinnitus activities treatment, and that includes simple things like making sure you can see the talker and watch their face and helpful if you know what the what the topic is, to move closer, to move away from the noise. Um, 
And, and of course, hearing aids are helpful to lots of patients with tinnitus. Um, they don't always improve speech and noise, but they certainly improve speech and quiet and can improve speech and noise in many, many situations. The hearing aids are much, much better now than they were even five or 10 years ago. So a hearing is really, really important. Um, we've done a terrible job, I think, emphasizing how important hearing is. We can all feel very sad appropriately when we see somebody, for example, in a wheelchair, but it's really hard to understand how important hearing is when somebody gets a hearing loss. It's not just about hearing, it's about communicating and interacting with people and socializing and having fun with your friends and looking forward to the future. Hearing and communication is really, really important. And then when you have tinnitus, again, your tinnitus can interfere with your hearing. And how can we understand tinnitus unless we have it ourselves? What would it's like to hear this tone, to hear this whistle, to hear this hum? that we have no control over. So it's a real challenge for a lot of people. Um, and there's lots that can be done, but it's just, it's just a, a mystery for a lot of patients and a lot of partners of patients and unfortunately a lot of professionals. Right, that does make sense how important our hearing is and, and the lack of importance that it's emphasized on in our society. It's somewhat sad. I mean, I feel like a lot of, a lot of the people in our community would agree that they had no idea what tinnitus was or how important hearing was until after they got tinnitus and they kind of realized, wow, this is, this is a very big part of my life and this is very serious. I should have taken this a lot more seriously. Um, my next question for you has to do, we kind of touched based a lot on this. Um, the general question was kind of, can tinnitus be effectively managed, which I think we both can agree it can be. Um, when you look at the media, though, and some individuals that are in the media, some famous celebrities, sometimes they can report that tinnitus is can be so effectively managed that it's a non-issue and that it's not something that really needs research or looking into. Obviously, we, we don't agree on this, but do you think that they are damaging our ability to better spread awareness and to get more funding for research? Well, I've never actually heard anybody say statements like that. I think, again, it's really important to appreciate that um, we're all different, right. and uh, there are a lot of patients that are seriously disabled because of their tinnitus, and um, that's a real challenge, and uh, given that there is no pill or there's no surgery for people, it's uh, very, very difficult to deal with. Um, I recall a story that I, um, many, many years ago, I uh, had a, um, one of a small grant that was uh, covered in the university uh, newsletter that went out to alumni around the country. And it was only one paragraph of this grant that I had uh, going around the country to several thousand alumni from the university in a four or five page uh, web site. And it was interesting for me because in the next uh, six weeks, I had about 200 emails from alumni all around the country, and they all pretty much said the same thing. They said, I've had tinnitus for 10 years, and it does not bother me. But if you found a cure, I will fly to Iowa City next week. <laughs> so a lot of people really deal with this as best they can, but they really wish that it wasn't there. 
Right. So they 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 have a hard time with it, but they can deal with it. But hey, if you can get rid of it, let's get rid of it, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, I actually did a survey. I was in Australia many years ago and did a survey of this uh, Australian Tennis Society and published the work on the kinds of treatments people want. And people will, what most people want is a pill, um, but they will uh, use wearable devices and they will, many of them were prepared for uh, a cochlear implant and some of them were prepared for a brain implant. So uh, the people, some people are very desperate given that uh, they can't find help. And so things are changing. There's a lot more people willing to provide uh, different counseling and sound therapy. So that's a great thing. But um, at this point, there's still no cure. So Richard, another question I have has to do with kind of compensation and how tinnitus treatments are paid for. So individual tinnitus management can require a large investment of of a clinician's time. To the best of your knowledge, has there been any effort made in the U.S. to encourage insurance companies and the healthcare system to cover tinnitus therapy? Well, not enough. Um, You know, there's uh, the whole healthcare reimbursement field in general is quite complex. Um, And uh, so I think that this is uh, becoming of greater interest to lots of professionals and lots of uh, clinicians. Um, I actually uh, wrote an article last year on um, the challenges that people go through for compensation. And it turns out that I was surprised to find that you can be uh, compensated for providing counseling for smoking cessation and for weight management um, by a variety of different professions. Um, And uh, it's not a cognitive behavior therapy for smoking cessation. It's just counseling for smoking cessation. And so why can't we do that for tinnitus? Why can't we provide counseling reimbursement to help tinnitus patients? Um, So this is going to be a very challenging strategy in the healthcare system. Um, And I think that some of the first steps are to become more uh, open-minded about how the healthcare system works and how the reimbursement in the healthcare system works. Uh, I think we need to learn um, who gets compensated for what, what kind of training do they have, how much time does it take to provide these services. And uh, I think that this, fortunately, is going to be a, a good thing um, to, to open up the whole reimbursement for healthcare systems and see uh, what options there are for uh, providing reimbursement and what what uh, training needs to have. And I think that there should be. Again, I think part of it is helping people appreciate how important hearing is and how the system works for reimbursement of, of uh, counseling for tinnitus. And I think that uh, we're going to go in the right direction, but I think it's going to take a while and they're going to take a very concerted effort um, of the healthcare professions in general to be, and the government in general, to be more open about uh, how the whole system works. Because I think for the most part, people really don't understand how the healthcare system works and who gets reimbursed for what. Right. And, and, and what is your opinion on compensation for tinnitus sufferers who get it due to 
work noise exposure or accidents? Right. So I think it's actually um, a wonderful thing that people can get compensated for having tinnitus, um, not just for their hearing loss. And I think this is becoming more and more widespread. I know it's happened in Iowa for a number of years, but um, the guidelines differ from state to state in the United States. But it's um, wonderful that um, now you can get compensated separately for hearing loss and for tinnitus. And I think that the uh, American Medical Association guidelines for compensation undervalue the distress caused by tinnitus. Um, so I think that um, now uh, people that get in car accidents and people who work in noisy factories and people who are exposed to gunfire um, now are getting compensated not just for their hearing loss but for their tinnitus. And there are strategies and ways that I and others have developed to, to quantify the magnitude of the whole body impairment caused by tinnitus. And I think it's a great thing that, uh, that the society is realizing that tinnitus indeed is very serious. And if you have uh, tinnitus as a result of an airbag going off or as a result of working in a noisy factory for 25 years, you should be compensated for it. This is a great thing. Yeah. So in the United States, it seems to the best of my knowledge that there, you cannot get disability benefits for tinnitus specifically. Um, obviously, your research and what you're doing is helping showing how significant and uh, life-changing tinnitus can be. Is there any direction or any, um, any method that can be used to help make people or the, the government aware? Or do you think it's more of just spreading awareness about it as you're currently doing to, to bring it to the forefront? Well, I think that you can get reimbursement for tinnitus. For disability benefits? I believe so, yeah. And um, I don't know, make the distinction between, I think it's true both for, for in the military and in the in the public health. You can get reimbursed oh, okay. for tinnitus. I, I, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So what I do um, is uh, I have uh, developed formal questionnaires that I use and, and uh, clients fill these out beforehand and uh, discuss their problems associated with thoughts and emotions, hearing, sleep, and concentration. Uh, they make ratings of how their tinnitus has been affected. Um, quite often when, for example, somebody starts work, their hearing is measured, they're uh, asked if they have tinnitus or not, and um, and then after working for 25 years, their hearing has been measured. They show that they have a noise-induced hearing loss. They've reported they have tinnitus in the last few years. And uh, I can I come up with, after the interview and the questionnaires that the clients fill out, I come up with a whole body impairment for tinnitus, um, not just for the hearing loss, but for the tinnitus. And um, again, it goes state by state, but um, I'm happy to say that um, you can be compensated independent of your hearing loss for your tinnitus. Right. That's fantastic. I, I, I didn't know that, that the general population had that ability. I, I thought it was mainly for just 
uh, I thought, and, and as we were talking about before, I thought we were discussing more veterans and stuff, but that's, that is fantastic. And it's, it's great to hear that you're doing this work to help, uh, to help people get into programs to, to get those benefits as well. Yeah. And of course it's a, it's an often the starting, uh, place for using that compensation for getting hearing aids and getting tinnitus sound therapy devices and getting counseling procedures. So it's, uh, appropriate that they receive this consult, uh, it's appropriate that they receive this compensation and it enables them to go through and get help. So it's a great thing. So there are some people in our community who have severe tinnitus and they think that they've done it all. They've tried it all. They can't, they, they don't necessarily know what their next step is and they feel that they have done everything they could have done up to this point. Do you have any advice for those individuals? Well, I think it's, appropriate to keep in mind that there is no cure, no pill, no surgery. And so everybody in life has challenges. And uh, from the early work I did in the late 1980s, it was obvious that the first six to nine months are the worst. And that's normal. It's reasonable to be upset. It's reasonable to be angry. It's reasonable to say, why did this happen to happen to me? It's not fair. Those are all reasonable responses. Eventually, um, and again, I'm going to say hearing aids, counseling, sound therapy can be very, very helpful for a lot of people. Eventually, uh, you'd like people to be able to move on with their life, to realize that, okay, everybody has challenges. Um, this is my sound, and I'm going to move forward and um, do the best I can. And uh, with the counseling, hopefully people can move forward and put the tinnitus in the background. Okay. I, you, you, when you said six to nine months, I, I kind of, when, when we see a lot of people in our community talking about, oh, I've had it, it's and they're really struggling, it usually is in that first six to nine months. And then eventually you kind of, for some people, you do see that change of where, oh, I'm dealing with it better. I'm coping better. But yeah, those, those first couple months are pretty brutal. Do you, especially when do you meet with people who get it in those first couple months? And is your advice basically just like, you gotta, you gotta try and stick it out for a little bit. You'll, you'll, you'll adjust to it. And well, um, so I do see people early on and again, it's like, um, it's like if you go in and you're diagnosed with cancer, it's quite reasonable to be upset. It's quite reasonable to say, this is not fair. Why does it happen to me? And so when you get to tinnitus, these responses, these initial responses are reasonable. So then the question is, okay, so it turns out there's no cure. Um, this is a sound. It's not a good sound or a bad sound. It's a, it's a sound. And so is there some way I can get used to this? Is there some way I can cope? Is there some counseling and sound therapy that can make the sound less important in, in my life? Is there something I can do to make the sound, this tinnitus sound, less important? And again, our tinnitus activities treatment, the use of hearing aids, the use of sound therapy, um, for a lot of people, helps them get to that point. It may take several months, um, but the strategy is to move forward uh, and uh, deal with this. And 
uh, and own the tinnitus. It's, it's not a good sound or a bad sound. It's a sound. So coming up next, another question I have is why do levels of sleep have such a huge impact on tinnitus? A lot of people report that when they get good night's sleep, their tinnitus is very low and they get a bad night's sleep or, or sleep that they keep waking up from their tinnitus is very loud. Is, is there some type of connection here? I recall giving a talk many years ago to a large group of people with tinnitus. And certainly one of the things that I think is clear that, um, again, sleep is one of the most common problems, getting to sleep. And when patients wake up in the middle of the night and the room is quiet, uh, they often hear their tinnitus uh, outstanding and have difficulty getting back to sleep. And patients often say when they wake up in the morning, their tinnitus is worse. And again, I'm going to say when you wake up in a quiet room, because background sound is often very helpful for tinnitus patients, waking up in a quiet room after sleeping all night long for some patients is very distressing. And I remember, as I said, giving a talk to this tinnitus group and this patient said, oh no, um, for me, when I wake up, it's really bad. And even if I have a little nap during the day for five minutes, my tinnitus is really, really bothersome. And I thought about it for a minute. And in fact, when we're asleep, our brain goes through different stages and different activities to sort of recycle itself. And it may very well be that when that brain is going through the different stages of neural activity, that um, for some patients that can trigger and affect their tinnitus in a way that uh, makes it worse. Hmm. Interesting. It's interesting how I guess sleep can affect different people's tinnitus. Um, it's, it's like, I mean, it's a very much individ, individualized thing where everyone is different in that sense. Yep. As it is for the mechanisms responsible for tinnitus, very different in different people. Mm -hmm. So when people talk to you or it's discussed uh, habituation, do you think in, in your opinion, is, is habituation people not being able to, like, obviously they can hear their tinnitus if they look for it, but is habituation not being able to hear it and being able to go on about your day or is habituation more of being accustomed to it and not getting an emotional response from hearing your tinnitus? Or do you think it's kind of a combination of both? I think in some ways habituation has been overemphasized a little bit and the, it's not a bad thing, but the, the example that I give, um, is that, you know, when we put our socks on in the morning, uh, we can feel our socks on our feet for the first few seconds. And then eventually we don't feel our socks on our feet anymore. And that's what habituation is. It's not important. It's not catching our attention and it's easy for our brain to habituate to it. Um, and, uh, people have used that as an analogy for, for, helping to cope with tinnitus, for example, using sound therapy. And I guess that's okay. But um, part of the challenge is that some people don't seem to habituate to it easily. And so have they failed? And um, so one of the things that uh, I have a psychological, a psychologist friend um, from Copenhagen, uh, Anna Moore, who has been helping tinnitus patients uh, for many, many years, and she's taught me quite a bit. And so it's not necessarily about habituating, doesn't have to be the goal here. The goal could be acceptance. So it's not, 
the tinnitus isn't good or bad, it's a sound. And uh, as I said, it's she even made the point more recently that it's my sound. I own this sound. And so it's it's not like you're fighting the tinnitus or your need to deal with it. It's just, it's a sound. It's not a good sound or a bad sound. And it's our, it's our role as clinicians to help the patient get to that stage where, and again, with the use of counseling and the use of background sound and hearing aids, um, how can we make the tinnitus less important in your life? And for some people, that has to do with accepting it. It's not good or bad. It's a sound and maybe even owning it. It's my sound. I own this sound. Mm-hmm. So it's more of tackling it and, and, and you being in control instead of the tinnitus being in control. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. And do you think that someone's, the, how they perceive or the loudness of their tinnitus will affect their ability to quote unquote uh, habituate? Right. So clearly the, the loudness is a factor. No question about that. And again, I'll go back to the to the uh, Tyler and Domon model about the separating the tinnitus from the reactions to the tinnitus. But a louder tinnitus can certainly be more annoying for people. And so um, what that means is that background sound, sound therapy at low levels can actually reduce the loudness of tinnitus and make the tinnitus less prominent. So I think uh, the loudness is only one factor here. Essentially, I think a common theme that we have during this interview is that tinnitus is a very complex equation, and it's not just one factor that's the end-all part of the equation, that there is different aspects of it that can change, be adjusted to help better deal and cope with it, essentially. Absolutely. As we get toward the end of our conversation here, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about something you're putting together called Random Acts of Tinnitus Relief. Yeah, so... um... Just uh, recently, I was uh, reading a book called Random Acts of Kindness by Canary Press. As soon as I started reading this book, I was just uh, very impressed um, about uh, people who have had challenges in their life and written some wonderful stories about people that have been nice to them or how they have been nice to other people or kind or made things wonderful. And just for all of us, being kind to other people is, uh, I think, should be one of our main goals in life. And so I was really touched by this book. And as soon as I started reading it, I thought, gee, I wonder if somehow we can apply this to tinnitus. And so what I thought is that I would actually like to uh, collect um, stories and paragraphs and sentences that uh, people have experienced uh, random acts of kindness or random acts of tinnitus relief. Um, and if they can share these stories with me, then, and again, it can be just a paragraph or just a sentence, not too lengthy stories, but I would like to create something, perhaps on our university website, um, sharing these uh, random acts of tinnitus relief. Um, so, uh, if you have, uh, something you'd like to share and you can 
uh, do it anonymously or put your first name. And I'm not quite sure, but you might be able to use your whole name. And I'll give you credit for that if that's appropriate. Um, but if you can send me an email with these random acts of tinnitus relief, I think it might be uh, a good thing for the tinnitus population worldwide to be able to see what how people have been helpful to them or what experiences that you have had as a tinnitus sufferer that have made tinnitus not so problematic or have made it uh, less of an issue for you or have had an experience where somebody has been really caring and that's really touched you in a very moving way. So if you have a story uh, that you'd like to share about the random acts of tinnitus relief, you can email that to me at tinnitus2, as tinnitus the number two, tinnitus2 at healthcare.uiowa.edu. So send me your story at tinnitus2 at h-e-a-l-t-h-c-a-r-e dot u-i-o-w-a dot e-d-u. Tinnitus2 at healthcare.uiowa.edu. Again, I'd like to be able to share your stories of um, random acts of kindness related to your tinnitus. That could be a wonderful thing. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I think it's something that a lot of people would enjoy reading and, and it'll be informational for them as well. All right, Richard, I think I think that wraps about up everything we wanted to talk about. Um, I do want to thank you, you know, for taking, obviously, your time uh, on a Saturday to come talk with us. We really do appreciate it. We do appreciate all the work you do and, and everything in regards to tinnitus. Um, it's obviously us having tinnitus in our community. We can't thank you enough for just the, all the effort that you put into trying to help uh, make this a thing of the past. Well, I hope I can be helpful. And uh, as I said, there's a lot of people out there that uh, require help. And there's a lot of professionals around the world that are making an effort to be helpful. So it's uh, we're all going to work together and uh, make this less of a problem. That is the goal. <laughs> well, Richard, I just want to thank you again. And I'm happy to have you join us today on today's podcast.